0: Thank you all for coming, and thank uh, Sandals Church for your hospitality. But I don't really know why you invited me to come to talk about sanctity. What do I know about that? My only plea is that those who live in the valley can see and appreciate the mountain better than those who live halfway up the mountain. But then Jesus, in effect, uh, divided all of mankind into two kinds of people, Uh, saints who know that they're sinners and sinners who think that they're saints, like Pharisees and pop psychologists. My favorite philosopher, Socrates, did something similar on the intellectual level. He divided all of mankind into fools who think that they're wise and the wise who know that they're fools. Well, I am certainly not an expert on sanctity. In fact, I think that there are no experts on sanctity. So my first question is, why is that so? I take a leaf from one of my favorite philosophers, Gabriel Marcel. His most famous and enduring idea is the distinction between two kinds of questions, especially philosophical questions. Uh, It's an answer to the question, how come philosophers, like scientists, solve some of their questions and make at least some progress and on some of the questions they don't? That's a question that worried René Descartes, the founder of modern philosophy, At the beginning of his landmark book, The Discourse on Method, uh, he says, since reason is equal in all mankind, if we only use the right method, we should be able to come to the same conclusions and overcome philosophical differences once and for all, as the sciences are doing, even in his day. Why has that not happened? Why are philosophers still just as much in disagreement? Why are theologians just as much in disagreement now as they ever were? unlike each of the sciences? Well, Marcel's answer is that some questions are problems and some are mysteries. And that doesn't mean simply that some questions can be solved and some questions can't, or that some questions can be defined and clarified very easily and some questions can't. It's deeper than that. Why are some questions not able to be finally resolved to everybody's satisfaction. For instance, psychologists can say a lot about the process of falling in love, but they cannot explain or predict why Romeo will fall in love with Juliet. Why did Dante fall in love with Beatrice? Nobody expected that. That's like the Red Sox World Championship. It's almost miraculous. Beatrice was plain Jane. Dante saw her every day under his window, running errands for her father, who was a cloth merchant. Uh, And one day, he simply saw her differently. What was the cause of that? Was it a literal miracle? Did the sky part and a bolt of lightning enter his brain? No. But was it predictable? No, it wasn't. Falling in love, that's a very strange thing. There are aspects of it that psychology can tell you about. Patterning from parents, from uh, friends, from siblings, uh, chemistry, but despite that, you can't predict it. That would be like predicting what Shakespeare is going to say in Hamlet from an exhaustive knowledge of the alphabet. Here's another question that philosophers have never solved the problem of evil. Why is there evil? My question is not how can you reconcile the existence of evil with a good God? There are very good answers to that. But why is there evil at all? What motivates evil? I ask myself that question. Uh, And even when I look at my own most intimate experience, I don't understand myself. I identify very much with with Paul in Romans 7. He says, I don't understand my own behavior. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Every moral choice we ever make is a choice that God offers to us because he's given us free will. And you can use this image for that choice. God, imagine him as having two hands, a right hand and a left hand. In his right hand is obedience to his will. In his left hand is disobedience. And since we have free will, we can always say yes or no. God is a gentleman. The one thing that God cannot do is rape a human soul. He can seduce it, he can make love to it, but he will not rape, he will not force. Now, uh, every time we have chosen his right hand, uh, we receive joy, real joy, deep down joy, permanent joy, lasting joy, deep satisfying joy, in the long run. Every time we've chosen his left hand, we have found misery. So the next choice that he offers us, will you have the secret of joy which is, my will be done, or will you have the secret of misery, which is, my will be done? C.S. Lewis has that shattering line in The Great Divorce. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All right, we know that every single time we've chosen the right hand, we've found joy, and every time we've chosen the left hand, we've found misery. So, why do we sin? Why do we say, gee, God, that's a tough one. Gee, I'm tempted, you know? I know I shouldn't choose the left hand, but let me try it, maybe it'll work this time. Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result the next time. We're all insane. The human race is insane. That's empirical proof of original sin. Now, why? It's a mystery. We're nuts. Insanity isn't rational. By definition, it isn't rational. So philosophers will never solve the problem of evil. But if they won't solve the problem of evil, they won't solve the problem of good either, at least in its supreme form. Sanctity, the best and the holiest among us. Why did they choose that? Why did they choose more good than most of us? How can you explain that? Well, Marcel says the difference between a problem and a mystery is that a problem can be objectified. A mystery cannot. We cannot solve the problem of evil because we are the problem of evil. He says a mystery is a problem that encroaches upon its own data invading them, as it were, and transcending that dualism between subject and object, which is the heritage of Descartes and that haunts the whole modern mind. If it's out there, you can use the scientific method on it. Insofar as it's in here, you can't, because in here means the self, the I. Science analyzes, and you have to analyze the complex into the simple, and science does a wonderful job of that especially when it can use mathematics, which is a prime tool of analysis. But the I is the skinniest word in the language. It has no parts. You have no parts. Oh, you have a body and a soul, but the soul has no parts. It has powers, faculties. It doesn't have parts. It's one. You can't cut your soul in half. You don't lose a part of your soul when you get a haircut. The I is simply I. It's incapable of analysis. So the fundamental mystery is that little word, I, which is the image of God, because God's self-revealed name, the one time God names himself rather than letting us name him, and when we name him, we name him in ways relative to ourselves, creator, redeemer, Lord, Father, God. He's not his own God. He's not his own redeemer. What is he in himself? Well, no religious Jew will ever answer that question because the answer is the word that God alone can utter. I am, the word that came from the burning bush to Moses. Any other word, I can objectify. Herman, there's Herman, an object, third person. But I, I can't say there's I, third person. I can't get out of my I. So whatever has the I essentially in it is a mystery rather than a problem. This, I think, is why reductive materialism is so popular among the scientific elite. I remember having a long discussion with a a philosopher at MIT many, many years ago uh, about whether there was such a thing as a human self. He was a Humean. David Hume says there are no substances and therefore there is no substantial self. There is just thoughts and feelings that happen to occur together in time and space, and he believed that. Uh, And I was trying to argue commonsensically, because he was a very intelligent man, that at least the word, I, was meaningful. And he said it wasn't. All words referring to human consciousness were strictly meaningless. It was just a, a, a useful convention that we used them. And we went at it for three or four hours, and we made absolutely no progress whatsoever. And I was appalled. I said, surely we should be able to understand each other. But I think after those three or four hours we understood each other even less. His last words are, I still haven't the faintest glimmering of an idea what you and philosophers like you mean by the word I. Well, that reduces everything to a problem. And there's a great temptation to do that because if we can reduce things to a problem, we can conquer them. We can solve them, we can predict them, we can control them. And that's what science is very good at and you want to expand what you're very good at. And you don't want to expand what you're not very good at, but what you're not very good at is being that perfect I. I think Marcel's distinction between problem and mystery explains why of the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the most mysterious. C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity, which I've come to realize is a much profounder theological book than it seems. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's also not profound. The Bible is both. He says, God the Father is the being that transcends yourself to whom you pray. And God the Son is the being that bridges the gap between you and God, the being along whom you pray. But the Holy Spirit is the one inside you and behind you that's prompting you to pray. And just as you don't see the sun when it's behind you and casting a shadow, you don't see the Holy Spirit. Uh, In a very oversimplified way, you you could summarize all of salvation history in three stages. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself as the God above us that transcends us, God the Father. In the New Testament, because of his love, and love seeks intimacy, he attains the intimacy of becoming one of us. Christ, holy man, as well as holy God, our brother. Like us in all things but sin. But that's not enough. When he says to his disciples, it's good for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, I won't send the Holy Spirit. And that's much better. Better to have the Holy Spirit here than Jesus here. We still don't believe that. If. If you could ha- if you could advertise that Jesus Christ himself literally in person, visibly would appear at Sandals Church tonight, you'd get millions of people. You'd get people trampling to come. But Jesus himself says, that's not so great. Much better what you have. Why? Why is it better that he goes away by the ascension and sends the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is inside you. Not just outside you and not just beside you, but inside you. That's a maximum intimacy. It's like being haunted. It's like being, being possessed, but not by a demon. But you see, you can't objectify that. Well, this very distinction between problem and mystery, which I think is crucial, raises a great question for you psychologists. Does that mean psychology can't be a science? Insofar as psychology is the study of the human psyche, which if not the whole self is certainly at the center of the self, it seems that that's the one thing you can't objectify. But science has to objectify. So is all of psychology a fake science? No less a thinker than C.S. Lewis at least suggests something like that, uh, especially in the novel That Hideous Strength, where uh, one of his sympathetic characters, Hingist, the martyred chemist, who gets murdered by the NICE, uh, is having a brief discussion with uh, uh, Mark Studdock, the confused protagonist, and he says, I, I joined this because I thought it had something to do with, uh, with science, but I find out that it doesn't. And Mark says, oh yes, it does. Uh, in fact, I'm a part of it, I'm a sociologist. And uh, Hingis says, sociologist, I'm talking about science. There's no such thing as the science of sociology. Why? Well, sociology is about people. You can't, you can't know people scientifically, you can only get to know them. Now. I think Lewis was pointing to a problem there, but insofar as he's advocating the solution, I think he's wrong. Sociology is a science, and there can be honest sociologists, and there can be honest psychologists. You can study human beings, either individually or collectively, and you can study, certainly, you can study human behavior, individually and collectively, and we've learned a lot from those sciences, but how is that possible? if they deal with the human self and the self is a non-objectifiable subject. Well, I think Lewis is onto something. Insofar as what you're dealing with is subjective and not objectifiable, you can't deal with it by the scientific method. You have to deal with it by another kind of knowing entirely. Intuitive knowing. Most Languages have distinctions that English doesn't have, especially in important words like to know. In German, there's kennen and wissen. In French, there's connaître and savoir. Wissenschaft is science. The savoir, the savant is someone who has savoir, expertise, knowledge. Can you be an expert in this? Well, if it's a problem, if it's objectifiable, yes, there are experts in it. But there are some things that you can know only by kennen by acquaintance, not by description. Imagine you have two friends. One of them is very simple-minded, not very educated, not very bright, but loves you so dearly that they would instantly die for you without a thought. The other is the world's greatest psychologist, brilliant scientist, a good, honest, open-minded person, but doesn't love you, doesn't care about you, but is interested in using you as a guinea pig and he wants to interview you an hour a day, uh, five days a week for the next 10 years. And he's gonna write a a 5,000 page uh, tome uh, based on you as his main case study. So he knows every in and out of your personality. He knows a thousand times more than your friend does. Now, who knows you the best? Who knows you, your friend? No contest. On the other hand, who knows the most about you? Obviously, the psychologist. See, two kinds of knowing. So there are limits to psychology and sociology, which there are not to the natural sciences. Uh, When you look at a stone, the stone doesn't say, I'm going to hide from you. When you look at a, a fly, the fly tries to hide from you and you might try to swat it and it flies away but you can outwit it and you can figure out why it flies away. When you try to tame a dog it's a little more complicated. The dog might not trust you and you have to somehow get its trust but there are dog whisperers who can almost infallibly overcome that problem. There are no human whisperers that can overcome the problem of mistrust either horizontally or vertically. Not even the Holy Spirit himself can without overcoming and denying human free will infallibly guarantee that his whispers are going to be answered by a yes rather than a no. That's why there are essential limits to psychology and even sociology. Well then, what can psychology do? Specifically, what can modern psychology do? Well, it can do a lot of things that ancient psychology can't do. It's much more sophisticated, it's much more scientific, we have much more data. And in philosophy, as in science, I think the theory has to be tested by the data. It's just that the data are much more complex. So certainly we've made enormous progress since the days of of Aristotle or even Aquinas. On the other hand, there's something that we can learn better from the ancients than from the moderns, even in these sciences, because they are, though not nearly as much in touch with the problem aspects, usually more in touch with the mystery aspects. We don't speak in ordinary language of of modern wisdom. We speak of ancient wisdom very easily. We speak of modern knowledge. And that's a kind of Freudian slip. That's the unconscious language use that that shows that we really believe that although we can't learn that much knowledge from the ancients, we can learn a lot of wisdom. Ah, yes, but if you want to be empirical, if you want to learn from the data of experience, you prefer the modern, right? No, I don't even think that's true. I think the ancients have one compensating advantage even in the realm of the empirical. If you mean by empirical not merely the kind of sense experiences that can show themselves equally to an impersonal instrument like a camera or a spectrograph uh, or to a human being, but you mean rather everything that a human being directly experiences. William James, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, calls himself a radical empiricist. Now he's not a materialist at all. Why? Because he's a radical empiricist. He's not an ideological empiricist who (laughs) has the assumption that anything that doesn't appear to the five senses is unreal. That's why even though he was a lifelong agnostic, he wrote a fascinating, very useful, and open-minded book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And he was fascinated with religious mysticism. And he never said, it's all a fake because he's a true empiricist. The other equally famous American pragmatist, John Dewey, was not nearly as empirical as James. He was ideologically atheist and materialist, or at least ideologically agnostic. James was an agnostic too, but he was a practical agnostic. That's like two different kinds of skeptics. Socrates is a practical skeptic, but uh, Montaigne is a, a, a theoretical skeptic. A practical skeptic is someone who practices the method of uh, questioning everything, hoping to find the truth at the end. Uh, That's quite different than a dogmatic skeptic who says, that is the end. There is no truth, which is, of course, self-contradictory. It's true that there is no truth. And no matter how you nuance that, it always comes out as a self-contradiction. It's only probable that truth is only probable, or it's subjective that truth is objective, or it's an absolute that there are no absolutes, or it's a universal that nothing is universal. You can't can't hold that. Okay, back to Marcel's distinction between problem and mystery. Marcel made one of the most astounding and challenging statements I have ever read in uh, any philosopher. And I'm sure 75% of philosophers writing in America when they read that, say, this is absolute nonsense. This is fuzzy-headed, muddle-headed thinking. He says that, I can't remember his exact words, it's in the essay on the ontological mystery, but he says at the end that he thinks that the most fruitful and profound avenue to understanding being, to understanding metaphysics, to understanding ontology, is the study of sanctity. What? Metaphysics? Sanctity? Why does he connect those two things together? Well, there are two premises that reveal the connection. Put them together and you get this conclusion. Premise number one is something that Marcel shares with Heidegger and a number of other continental philosophers, namely, that if you want to understand being, understand human being. Understanding the being of things in nature is understanding a different kind of being than understanding your own being. Things in nature are real, and you are real, but they're real in different ways. And understanding the things in nature are like reading a book. But understanding your own being is like reading a letter that's addressed to you, written by yourself. It's more intimate. It's more inside. You get more information that way. So maybe in order to understand being itself, we should start not simply with the beings in nature, that can lead you so far, but maybe we should try understanding our own being, human existence. All right, that's one premise. That's a a fruitful path at least. Second premise, how best to understand human existence? How best to understand the I? Well, you could you could understand it you could try to understand it by a kind of average. Or you could understand it in its most problematic and and, and defective forms. Or you could try to understand it in its most perfect form. When you study anatomy, do you start by studying diseases or do you start by studying the healthy human body? Is health defined by diseases or are diseases defined by health? The second, of course. Well, why not apply the same to the soul as you do to the body? Why not understand diseased human beings by healthy human beings? Well, the answer to that question is very simple because there are no healthy human beings. We're all diseased, that's true. And the saints are the first to confess that they're sinners, but they're not as diseased as the rest of them. That's what makes them saints. So at least relatively you understand the more diseased by the less diseased, not vice versa. That's a radical notion in modern psychology. Very few, if any, non-Christian psychologists see human nature as fallen, as abnormal. They all take it as normal. They all take what we know as Christians is diseased as if it is the norm. And then they see saints as weird and as not conforming to the norm. This is why Peter Jackson spoiled the greatest book of the 20th century. It's a great movie, and if you never read The Lord of the Rings, you'll love his movie. But if you read The Lord of the Rings and you love it and you understand it, you'll be outraged at the fact that almost every single character is at least subtly, if not overtly changed to a more diseased character, a more conflicted character uh a much more cynical character. obvious example is Faramir, the great medieval knight, a uh, hero of honor and and of of almost impossibly heroic virtue, who becomes a suspicious kidnapper of, of, of the hobbits. Sam of all people, almost uh, the relationship between Frodo and Sam, which is, Pure friendship, almost breaks, at the steps of Cirith Ungol, because of Gollum, as if evil's almost more powerful than good. And most people say, "Well, sure, that's realistic. That's the way people are." These old epics that Tolkien is trying to revive are are worthless because they give you impossibly perfect ideals, Platonic archetypes. Well, that's their whole purpose. If you want to understand what what a real king is, look at Aragorn. If you want to understand what a real wizard is, look at Gandalf. If you want to understand what a real friend is, look at at, at Sam. They're not perfect, but they're heroes. The very idea of heroism uh, is something that I think Hollywood barely understands. But we understand it, we have a hero, we have a perfect hero a literal incarnate perfect hero, his name is Jesus Christ. And Christ reveals to us not only who God is, Christ reveals to us who man is. There are two equally important parts to the specifically Christian dogma about Christ and nobody else believes this except Christians. Christ is perfect God and Christ is perfect man. Augustine in his soliloquies at one point imagines God and himself in a conversation and he imagines God asking him, Augustine, you're a curious fellow, you're a philosopher, you wanna know a lot of things, Uh, how many questions do you want answered? And Augustine says, just two. Just two, says God, yeah. If you can give me complete answers to these two questions, I'll be satisfied. What are they? Augustine says, who are you and who am I? (laughs) That's pretty wise because those are the only two persons that you can never ever avoid for a single second in time or in eternity. Well, Christ is the answer to both of those questions. Perfect God and perfect man. And instead of judging him in relation to the supposedly empirical facts of who we are and how we behave, suppose we did the opposite. Suppose we judged ourselves in relation to him, which is what Christians do. Therefore, there is an enormous gap between Christian psychology and non-Christian psychology. Uh, A gap as radical as a gap would be if some astronomers believed that before a certain point in the history of our universe, the fundamental laws of physics were radically different. And what we have now is fallen gravity instead of real gravity and fallen electromagnetic attraction. Maybe there were three forces instead of two and one was removed. So the universe is is essentially bent and crooked. That would be a radically different physics and all other physicists would say you're crazy. Well, that's in effect what secular psychologists say to Christians who measure and judge uh, human behavior by the standard of Jesus Christ. All right, back to Marcel's statement that to understand human persons, understand the saints. Uh, To understand anything, you understand it in its state of perfection. You don't understand oak trees in light of acorns, you understand acorns in light of oak trees. You don't understand people in light of babies, they're just bigger babies. We are big babies, we're not just big babies though. You understand babies in the light of human beings. Why does an unborn baby have feet? It doesn't need feet in the womb. Why does he have a nose? He doesn't need a nose in the womb. He doesn't breathe air through his nose. He's practicing. The only answer to the question why he's developing those organs is in terms of his future, in terms of his purpose, his end, his teleology. Even though teleology doesn't work in the physical sciences, I'm not even sure it doesn't, but the consensus seems to be that it doesn't, it certainly is not only workable, but necessary in the psychological sciences. So the question, what is the complete, perfect, healthy human being? What is our end? That's crucial for understanding who we are now. In other words, If sanctity is the meaning of life, then we can only understand ourselves by understanding the saints who are closer to this than we are. But is it? Jesus says it is, huh? Doesn't Jesus just say, try a little harder? Uh Uh-uh, nope, nothing like that. Nothing like that, sorry. What does he say? He says, you must, not just ought to or should, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, come on, he didn't really say that. Oh, well, you don't like that? Throw that part out of the Bible, and then you may as well throw everything else out too, whenever you want to. But, but yeah, we can't do that, precisely. Hmm, but we have to, precisely. That's a koan puzzle. That's an unsolvable puzzle. Yes, that's life's primary puzzle. We have to do and be that which we cannot do and be. That's why we need a savior. So the meaning of life remains to be a saint. Jesus says so. Even Camus, the atheist, knew that. He was haunted by the saints all his life. Never believed in God, he remained an atheist, or at least an agnostic, all his life. But he was haunted by the saints. And one of the most compelling literary characters in in modern fiction, I think, is Camus alter ego, Dr. Roux, in the plague. Like Camus himself, Roux is an atheist. He finds himself in Algeria, a plague breaks out, he's the only one that can heal the people. And thousands are dying in, in horrible pain. And the doctor has a comfortable family and a comfortable practice back in France and everybody expects him to go back to France. And he doesn't, why? He says, because I know the meaning of life is to be a saint. I don't believe in God but I believe in sanctity. Problem is, the doctor ruminates, I can't understand how you can be a saint without God. So I've got these three ideas, one of which must be false, and I can't figure out which one. Number one, the meaning of life is to be a saint. Number two, there is no God. Number three, you can't be a saint without God. Now, that is a wonderful problem for an atheist to have. If Camus had lived a little longer, he would have been one of the greatest Christian writers in history. He would have been a new Dostoevsky. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to unhappy atheists. Ask your atheist, is you ha- are you happy or unhappy? If, if he's happy, either, sl- either slap him in the face or leave him alone, he's not going anywhere. But if he's unhappy, talk to him. He's on the way. Léon Blois, the 19th century French Catholic playwright, uh, snuck this line into almost all of his plays. Uh, There is only one tragedy in the end, not to have been a saint. But don't most of us, both Protestants and Catholics, think of the saints as unusual and exceptional? Is, Is sanctity for everybody? Well, did Jesus uh, preach the Sermon on the Mount only to a few people? Did he put a postscript on it, this is for clergy only? No. Hmm. Well, even so, you've got to say that some people can do it and some people can't, right? Well, who who designed people? Were the two gods that designed people? One designed the people that could become saints and the other one designed the people that couldn't? Or did this one God design all people, and human nature as such? Well, yeah. Well therefore, you can't be a nominalist. You can't say only individuals count, there's no universals. If human nature is not a universal, you may as well be a racist, and split the humans into into two different races. It may not be Aryans and Jews, it might be saints and sinners, but nothing in common? Impossible. All right, so sanctity is for everybody. Uh, That means you can do it, because ought implies can. You can't possibly have a moral obligation to do something that is absolutely impossible at any time and in all circumstances for you to do. But you're not doing it. Yeah, that's why you feel guilty. I love that line in William Law's serious call to the devout life. He says, if you will consult your own heart in utter honesty and ask yourself the question, why am I not as holy as the primitive Christians? You must come up with the honest answer because you do not wholly want to be. That's very unflattering, but it's also very encouraging. What is sanctity? I've been talking a lot about it without defining it. Ontologically, it's godlikeness. It's being like God in your being and therefore in your, in your acting and in your desiring. It's, especially in your desiring, to obey the, the greatest commandment to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We all love God a little bit. We all love God with, with part of ourselves, uh, but not the whole. We have a divided will. Augustine discovered that profoundly in the Confessions, at the very moment of his conversion. Why was he holding back? We're split. The word "sin" has a lot of meanings. One of them is, of course, simply disobeying God's law and God's will. But another is the the separation, the uh, the the zünde. That's the German word from the from the verb zündern, which means to separate, to alienate, to to cut into two parts. Uh, separation not just of the self from God, but also of the self from the self. I am not what I will to be. Buddha, who was a profound psychologist, discovered that fact, that we're alienated, that we're broken. He called that uh, dukkha, uh, The word, I'm told, means uh, a stick that's broken, or an axle that's broken, or a limb that's broken, or a bone that's out of its socket. We're broken because we desire to be what we're not. We are one thing, and what we want to be is something else. And that's a profound diagnosis, but I think Buddha has exactly the wrong cure. He says, stop desiring anything. No, that's that's spiritual euthanasia. That's killing the patient to cure the disease. All right, so to be a saint is to be like God. That's the ontological answer to the question how to define the term. The phenomenological answer is much more complicated. What does it feel like? All of us are a mixture of saint and sinner. There's a little good in the worst of us, a little bad in the best of us, so it ill becomes the best of us to speak ill of the worst of us. Uh, So the description of the details of those two wills, those two movements that we all find within ourselves, what Paul calls Adam and Christ, the old man and the new man, that's a very fruitful area for a Christian psychologist and the method is, is, in a broad sense, phenomenological. You, you just look at the appearances and say exactly what you experience at the time without judging it with categories. Uh, and then there's also an empirical description of the saints. Phenomenology tells you what it feels like and empiricism tells you what it looks like because the model for phenomenology is feeling, and the model for empiricism is seeing. And seeing is much more objective and much more clear. And we need a lot of empirical data about the saints. I'm surprised that there isn't more, both inside and outside the church. If all psychologists were like William James, we'd have a lot of unbelievers writing Lives of the Saints. They'd be fascinated with them. But even most Christians don't pay much attention to them anymore. What a shame. On a purely practical level, there's no better way of teaching than by concrete example. And here are our heroes, our concrete examples. And of course, there are disagreements about them, but there's massive agreement. There's no fundamental disagreement, for instance, between Catholics and Protestants about who are are saints. I never met a Protestant who said, Mother Teresa and St. Francis of Assisi are both wicked people or any Catholic who knew people like uh, uh, Charles Wesley, uh, John Wesley, Hudson Taylor, uh, and called them sinners instead of saints. So there's a lot of agreed empirical data out there. When we define sanctity, though, it's very important to separate it from what's a very popular confusion, namely spirituality. That's a very dangerous word. It can be used correctly, but very often it's used incorrectly. When you go to bookstores, you often find two different sections, one on religion and one on spirituality. And that's accurate. They're very different. You find many people saying, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What does that mean? Well, it means that some of you uh, are in a real relationship to God. That's what religion means, relationship from religio or religare binding relationship, yoking or binding. But some of you, uh, on the other hand, are Gnostic heretics. (laughs) And you think of your soul as a perfume which you must purify so that it can uh, ascend into the nostrils of a receptive, smiling heaven. That's not religion, that's something quite different. There's nothing particularly fine about being spiritual. The most evil being in all reality is totally and perfectly spiritual, he's called the devil. On the other hand, every single bit of matter in the universe is good, because God created it and called it good. Buddha, who was a very spiritual person, very profound person, but very spiritual person, uh, gave his disciples a mode of salvation or deliverance from suffering, namely his Noble Eightfold Path, the culmination of the Four Noble Truths, Uh, and he shared his mind. He said, this is my mind, follow that and you will be saved by becoming spiritual. Jesus saved us by giving us his body, not just his mind. It's the blood of Christ that saves us, not the philosophy. So, For a Christian, sanctity doesn't mean spirituality. Uh, It's a relationship. It's a religious binding relationship. It's a free but non-negotiable relationship. It's an absolute relationship to the absolute. What is that relationship in a single word? Well, I'm going to shock some of you uh, by saying that the best word uh, that I can think of for that relationship in a single word Uh, comes from another religion, which I think is deeply compromised. The word is Islam, it has two meanings. First of all, it's cognate to the word shalom, which means peace in the deepest sense, the peace that, that, that Christ promised to bring, not as the world brings, but as he brings. The world brings peace with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ brings peace with God, self, and neighbor. But that peace comes through Islam, which means total surrender, total submission. That's the heart of all true religion. The most important petition in the Lord's prayer is that thy will be done. If you say that with your whole heart and soul, then by definition, that makes you a saint. So, sanctity is more than spirituality, it's even more than virtue. The moral virtues are very important, and if you don't have them, it's much less likely that you'll be a saint, but just because you're virtuous doesn't necessarily mean that you're a saint. The, the Pharisees had a lot of virtues. They were far from saints. St. Saint Paul, before his conversion, had a lot of virtues. He was honorable, he was honest, he was passionate. Uh, I love that passage in Philippians where he goes through all of his worldly pluses. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to the law, blameless. I was a Roman citizen. I studied under the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of the first century. It was called the light of Israel. Yet all of these things, compared with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I call, and then there's a wonderful word, which nobody since the King James Bible dared to translate literally. The word in Greek is skubala. It's a four letter word and it begins with S. Dung was the Elizabethan word for it. It's deliberately shocking. Even the life of moral virtue, important as it is, compared with the life of Christ is dung. So a saint is not just a virtuous man. He's a hero. To be a hero, you have to go beyond the call of duty you have a duty to practice all the virtues. You have a duty to, uh, to cultivate all the virtues. You have a duty to make your own character a virtuous character. That's your duty, everybody's duty. But a hero goes beyond the call of duty. Sanctity also goes beyond virtue in another way. It gives you a kind of ecstasy. The word comes from ecstasis, which means standing outside yourself. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means unself consciousness Self-consciousness ruins good things. It also ruins bad things. So when you are in a bad state, it's good to be self-conscious. Oh, look, I am now succumbing to uh, lust, to envy, to anger. But when you're doing something good, self-consciousness ruins that too. Oh, look, I am having a religious experience. (laughs) How interesting, I think I'll write a doctor's thesis on it. (laughs) The devil wants you to be self-conscious when you're good, but not when you're bad. Uh, God wants the opposite because he wants you to put a thermometer in your mouth when you're sick, but not when you're well. So the saints are not always mystics, but they always have some kind of standing outside themselves, not only that they're not willing their own will, but God's will, and not only that they're more conscious of God than they are of themselves, they take their temperature now and then too, but that they identify with God more than themselves. What does that mean, identify with? It means you find your identity in. Uh, A saint is someone who cannot imagine, cannot conceive going to heaven and finding out that there's no God. You're there and you're fine, but there's no God. Well, a saint would say, then there's nothing left of me, nothing at all. It's not that 10% of me is mine and 90% is God's. 100% is God's, so there's nothing left here. That's why Jesus says you have to die before you die. The grain of wheat has to fall into the ground and die in order to grow. Most people, especially Americans, want religion to add something to their lives. Christ wants religion to kill something in your life. That old man, that egotism, that my will be done. Most people want religion either because it's gonna give them pleasure or because it's gonna give them happiness, which is deeper, but they don't realize that what God wants is something beyond that, joy. Joy is as much deeper than happiness as happiness is deeper than pleasure because joy is always a surprise. Joy never is simply the satisfaction of our desires as happiness is, and that's why joy doesn't get boring. That's why heaven's not gonna be boring. I had a crisis of faith when I was a teenager. I didn't want to go to heaven. I thought it was gonna be boring. I thought it was an eternal church service, and frankly, I was bored at church services. (laughs) And then my father, who was a wise and holy man, pointed out to me that there's a verse in the book of Revelation that says, there there are no churches, no temples in heaven because God's there. I said, okay, I'll go. (laughs) Sanctity is, practical, it's winsome, it will work, it will win the world. Our world is dying. There's a patient on uh, the hospital table and he's in critical case uh, and, and he's dying and he hasn't flatlined yet, but he's moving there and the patient is mankind. We've been in that situation in one way or another ever since a certain incident with a snake and an apple in a garden. But the crisis is much greater today because we're, we're in a de-Christianized culture, a divorce culture. That is, we're increasingly divorcing ourselves from God. And a divorcee is not just a, a, a virgin. So we're not pagans, so it would be nice if we were. People complain the world is going back to paganism. I said, oh, oh what, what a bright vision, that would be wonderful. Because a pagan is eminently convertible. No, we're in desperate states. Uh, What can save our our, our miserable world? What can save Western civilization? No civilization in human history has ever survived without strong and stable families, none. And the four longest lasting cultures have all had a very high regard for the family. Jewish culture, Confucian culture, uh, Muslim culture, and the culture of Rome especially the Republic. These are the fundamental building blocks of any society. And these building blocks are suddenly and radically collapsing. It's inevitable that the whole building will collapse unless that's restored. How? Saints. Saints save civilization. That's not their fundamental purpose. But they do. Uh, how many saints? Well, we don't know. There's a Jewish legend that says uh, each time in human history, God looks down and asks, How many saints are there? And the answer is 12. So he says, Okay, I won't destroy the world. But if the number goes down to 11, he will destroy the world. Now, uh, the 12th saint has just died. Somebody's got to take his place. Will it be you? Maybe if it's not you, it won't be anybody. So maybe the survival of the world depends on you. And that's addressed to everybody. It's a universal call. There's no excuse. So please be a saint. Please save the world. I'm supposed to go on for 45 minutes. I have five minutes more, good. I'll give you one more point and then we'll have the really interesting stuff questions. Last question, is sanctity specifically Christian or are there non-Christian saints too? Well, that's a more complicated question than it seems because we can see great saints in other religions. Uh, Saint Philip who was a very good person by anybody's standards you don't have to believe this literally happened, it might be just a a myth, but it's a a useful one, was preaching in a cathedral once, and he was famous, and everybody came to hear him preach because everybody said, oh, this man is a saint. Uh, And he used to hear uh, in his mind actual words from the Holy Spirit. And he was uh, about to preach when the Holy Spirit said to him, I want to show you the most saintly person in this room and St. Philip Neri was very afraid that the Holy Spirit would point himself out to him. And he was saintly enough to realize that he was still proud and he didn't want that finger to point to him. And the Holy Spirit said, oh, don't worry, it's not you. (laughs) He said, okay, show me. And here was a, a, a little old scrub woman in the front row. But she was not a Christian, she was a Muslim. And the saint said to the Holy Spirit, But Lord, she is a heretic. And the Lord says, yes, that's true, but she loves me more than even you do. It's possible. We find saints everywhere. What's happening there? Well, ontologically, in objective fact, what's happening is that the grace of God mediated through Jesus Christ, which is the only way it comes, unless Christ himself is a liar, No man can come to the Father but by me. No one has seen the Father except through me. The grace of Jesus Christ is anonymously entering into that life. And I think we have to respect that and seek that out and learn from that. And that shouldn't be a surprise because here is an apparently very, quote, liberal idea, namely that other religions also produce great saints and we should listen to them. And learn from them, that's based on a very quote, "conservative idea." in fact, the, the essential idea of conservative or traditional biblical Christianity, namely that Jesus Christ is not just the ideal human being, but literally God incarnate. John 1 verse nine: Who is Jesus Christ? He is the light that enlightens Christians. Jesus the light is the light that enlightens every man who comes into the world. Oh. So this liberal hope for sanctity and even for salvation, because we don't have the population statistics of heaven and hell of non-Christians is based on this essential traditional doctrine that Jesus is the one savior who is for everybody. If you just look at the psychological appearances, if you just look at the polls, if you just listen to what people say, they'll say, no, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Psychology is fundamentally about know thyself, the solution to Socrates' great paradox. And the fundamental answer to that question is Christ himself. Christ is the answer to Socrates. How do we know Christ? In many ways, but one of the most fruitful ways is through those who know him best namely the saints, another definition of a saint, those who know, canon, not wissen, connaître, not savoir, those who know Christ the best. I can't think of any other way, any, any better way to be a Christian psychologist. I'm going to arbitrarily stop now uh, and uh, ask you for the most, one of the most precious things you could possibly give the one thing that only human beings do, ask questions. Questions are, are incredibly creative things. That question didn't exist for you before you raised it. How, how creative is that? Nothing else in the universe can do that. Uh, Jesus, you'll notice, never discouraged questions. He never said that's a stupid question or don't ask questions. So please ask questions. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's just invited me and I came. No mystery about that. But the motivation for writing a book on heaven, that's a little more tricky and mysterious. And I see now that my motivation was that I didn't know that I was a fool. A fool walks in where angels fear to tread. Uh, When I started writing the book, uh, my uncle said to me, I hear you're writing a book on heaven. I said, "Mm mm-hmm. He said, it must be wrong. I said, wait a minute, you haven't read it because I haven't even written it yet. How do you know it's wrong? He said, well, you believe the Bible, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, here's how the Bible describes heaven. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now, you're a man, right? And these thoughts have entered into your heart, right? So they must be wrong. So, I said to myself, I better throw away the book then, but wait a minute, wait a minute, it might still be useful. So I now think that if God were to read that book, he would frown at little bits of it, he would laugh at most of it, and he would smile at tiny little bits of it. So maybe those tiny little bits of it might be useful. But I know about as much heaven, about a heaven as an unborn fetus knows about California. But even that's precious. Actually, I wrote two books about heaven. One was a psychological book. It was about our desire for heaven. It was called Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. And there, I think I, I, I said, some things that are sayable. But the next book was called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Heaven but Never Dreamed of Asking. And it was a, a long gossipy book speculating about time and space and sexuality and all sorts of other stuff in heaven. And it's just useful speculation, just, just guesses. Just the opposite, in order to surrender your will, you have to have a strong will. Because the will to surrender your will has to overcome your contrary will not to surrender your will. So that's a fight. So you have to be a fighter. No, my, my complaint about pop psychology is not uh, that they teach that you have to have a strong will. You do. They teach that you have to be auto-erotic. You have to hug yourself and say, I am my own best friend. Uh, there was an obscene children's show on uh, when my kids were little, maybe it's still on, called The Electric Company, which began with this little ditty. The most important person in the whole wide world is you. Really? <laughs> Sorry, God, you're number two. Sorry, Jesus, you're number two. You're over there. I'm the sun, you're my planets. That's satanic. but It sounds good. It's very flattering. That's pop psychology in its worst sense. But still, we're not, we're not immune from that. I ask my students, uh, sometimes on questionnaires, this question. Most of you are familiar with this question. If you were to die tonight and meet God, and God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? About half of them give this answer. Uh, I tried. I led a good life. Uh, I was trying to be kind. Uh, I tried to obey your commandments. Uh, I I never knowingly uh, hurt anybody. In other words, I'm a Pharisee. Look, Lord, how good I am. I thank you that I am this good. That's desperately bad. That's really stupid. That's Bob's psychology.
1: the boundaries of the church mm. and interested in recovering wow. uh, sanctity in the, the broader culture. Um, because I think we all agree we, we would want a sanctified society, a society in which virtues are not just duties, but people take uh, acts of heroism seriously. But what do you do when you're, you, for us, you would say that Jesus is that, that model of that perfect human being that we are to be able to look um, ourselves in the mirror and say, this is what I ought to be like. Now, how do you recover that? Obviously, I know, you know evangelism, trying to reach people with the gospel is one thing. But what about those who, for example, other religions, or maybe they have no religion, but they don't want Jesus? So how is sanctity possible when you don't have the well picture of Jesus by which to judge in what sense you're sick? And in other well, words. they
0: don't want Jesus, but Jesus wants them. So he's gonna act on them if they let him anonymously. And on our part, uh, that's not an addition to the gospel, that's essential central of the gospel. Why is Jesus called Jesus? Look at your Bible. Does it say, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from hell or from punishment? No, he will save his people from their sins. So sanctification is equally necessary to justification. This is not about faith and works, this is about sanctification. That's part of the gospel. Okay, I believe that the first answer to the question how to do it is to be convinced that it has power, that it, that it can be done and should be done. The methods of doing it, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a politician, I, I don't have very many practical suggestions. I'm an absent-minded professor, one of the most impractical kind of people in the world. But I, but I am convinced that the very first step to motivate anybody to do something is to show them how beautiful it is and how attractive it is and how necessary it is. Uh, You believe in gravity, right? And you know that gravity holds all the matter in the universe together, right? And that that's a force that's incredibly powerful, all right? You're not a materialist, right? You believe that there's a spiritual reality as well as a physical reality. And at least in us, those two realities are one. We're not a ghost plus a machine. So it's reasonable to think that the spiritual universe is analogous to the physical universe, which would mean that there is a spiritual equivalent to gravity. What's that? The presence of God. And what does that look like when it descends into human beings? Sanctity. So sanctity is a kind of spiritual gravity. Uh, When Jesus was around, people came out from everywhere to see him. Some hated him, some loved him, there's anti-gravity too. But his mere existence drew out those people as a as a magnet will draw iron filings. So with a saint. Here's a little obscure woman in India, Mother Teresa, and she became one of the most powerful people in the world. Thousands of people uh, fall, fell in love with Jesus Christ because of Mother Teresa, all right? Uh, how to save the world would be 10 more Mother Teresa's. That would okay, be a total we'll bombshell. <laughs> and there's no reason the 10 of them aren't in this room right now. Thank you. Dr. Kraft, I know you said that. Is this loud enough? Okay. I know you said that you're not a very practical person, but if somebody were to come to you and say, Dr. Kraft, I recognize that I'm a sick person, that I'm diseased, uh, what sort of practical advice? would you give them to become a saint? Oh, go to the great physician. Go to the saint maker. Uh, run screaming into his arms and say, save me. Uh, that's, like, that's too easy an answer. Uh, now, excuse me, it's too easy a question. That's like saying, if you were the captain of a ship and the ship was sinking, and there was a lifeboat, and you had to give instructions to the sailors, what would you say? Gee, I don't know, let's see. I might say uh, jump in the lifeboat. Um, but then, then again, that's too simple. Let me be sophisticated. Let me give some other answers. Come on. That's, that's too easy. Well, what sort of practical, like when you say you jump into the arms of the, of, the, of the Savior, right, run to Jesus, what hmm. does that mean? Like what sort of practical? Like, oh, I see. Well, that means different things for different people because we're all coming from different places. If he's in the center and we're all alienated from him at different parts of the periphery, it depends on where we're coming from, what we have to overcome, and what our roadmap is. So that's where you need good practical psychology and and, and human understanding. But I, I, I sense that I haven't really answered your question. Are you looking for a universal formula that'll practically work as a roadmap for everybody equally, like, like the four spiritual laws, I'm sorry. Uh, they're true, but they're not everybody's adequate roadmap. People come in such different sizes and shapes that you have to deal with, with them differently. Jesus is like the sun, and when the sun shines through a prism, it comes into different colors. And some of us are in the purple part, and some of us are in the red part, and some of us are in the blue part. So we see him differently. Not contradictorily, but just differently. And certainly, the obstacles in people's way are different. Is your obstacle intellectual? Is your obstacle cultural? Is your obstacle sexual? Is your obstacle uh, depression or guilt? Is your obstacle uh, addiction? Is your obstacle not wanting to offend your friends? There are thousands of different obstacles that have to be overcome, and there's no one answer to that. an activity. It's a very demanding activity. Uh, we Americans aren't very good at silence <clears throat> and at contemplation. Why? Because we think it's laziness. it's not just the opposite. It takes much more effort than work. We're flywheels. It's very easy to keep going round and round. It's very hard to stop. A car is going 50 miles an hour. it's easy to speed up to 100. It's easy to turn right or left or even make a U-turn. But to stop it entirely, takes a lot of effort. And that act of surrender uh, is not just stopping doing something, it's, how shall I put it? If you have a lively faith, then after you say, thy will be done, the first thing you'll do will be, you will duck. Because you'll know that God will answer it. <laughs> Watch out. You give him an inch and he'll take a yard. <laughs> um This would probably be a very another presentation you have to give, but just sort of in a sense of it. What do you say is the Christian, Christian nation, uh, the, the, the foggiest idea. Uh, That's a tempting question to think about. I don't think it's a fruitful question to think about. Uh, I think one of the most liberating things Mother Teresa ever said was the thing that she's most often quoted as saying, God did not put me into this world to be successful. He put me here to be faithful. You do the will of God and let the chips fall where they may. God picks up the chips.
1: Dr. Kreeft, um, do you think the two great commandments that Jesus gave us in the Bible is perhaps part of the practical answer to sanctity? Um, to First of all, know that we're loved by God, but then to respond to him and to our neighbor. And I see in American culture, we think being a saint sometimes means to be nice to people or to be tolerant to people, and, um, and people are just trying too hard. <laughs> but really not loving and serving and laying down their lives as we see the saints and as we see as Christ did for us.
0: Well, first of all, Jesus never told us to be nice because he wasn't nice. You don't take nice guys and nail them to a cross. Secondly, you're absolutely right in saying that the two great commandments are intensely practical. In A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis's very personal diary about his depression after the the death of his wife, he confesses real Job-like tests of faith. Uh, And at one point he says something like this. He says, I'm asking the wrong questions. I know the meaning of life. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the two great commandments. I'm supposed to get on with them. Everything else is about feelings and weights and depressions and stuff in me. Uh, the the, The commandments don't say anything about that. They just say, love God with your whole heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments aren't to think about, they're to do. We love to think about them because this gives us excuses. We don't fully understand them, so we can't do them. So we nuance them. We make them more difficult to to understand. But God made them almost impossible to misunderstand. What part of this don't you understand? You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart. Tell me which word you don't understand. Well, Lord, I'd, I'd like to discuss this some more. Well, I wouldn't. Do it. I think this gentleman has been wanting to go for a while. Yeah. Um, I love your work, Dr. Creep. I just wanted to ask. Um, there's a quote that I've heard is by, by I think Merton. I'm not sure, but that says uh, a saint is not someone who's good, but somebody who's experienced the goodness of God. And I just wanted to, know, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's my thought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, because. If you're good, that could mean many things. It could mean that you've made yourself good. Or it could mean that you think you can be good without God. Or it could mean that you think good means nice and you're nice. But once you've met God, you've met what goodness really means. And that's when you start really becoming good. And after you've met God and you're doing his will inevitably some people think you're not being good that's what i thought about jesus that's what i thought about all the saints many saints become martyrs why because it's a different kind of goodness it's a more shocking goodness if you're not offending anybody at all you're not really doing jesus work you're certainly offending Uh, the devil and if you're not stirring him up and if you're not being tempted and if you're being left alone and if everything is going smooth in your life worry because the better you are the more he'll get at you and the more problems you'll have but they will be the problems of life not the problems of death Oh yeah, that's easy. Just contemplate three non-negotiable divine attributes. If you're at all philosophical and you like logical reasoning, I find that this is a a very practical and useful spiritual device. One, God is all-powerful. He can do anything. Number two, God is all-loving. He loves you infinitely much more than you could love yourself. Number three, God is all wise. He knows exactly what you need. And therefore, these things that you fear, these these temptations from the false self, this confusion about the false self, this immense difficulty in cooperating with God in, in killing the false self, that is God's will. That is part of his plan. Trust him. Faith works a lot better and more effectively, I think, than the virtues. If, if you don't have much natural human courage, but you have a lot of faith and you trust God, you can be a martyr much more easily than if you have no faith, but quite a bit of courage. I believe we have time for maybe one more. Our plan is to end oh, let's at six. Oh, two. Okay, two more. <laughs> uh, if, if, if there were only 10 men left in Sodom, would you spare it? <laughs> Three more.: I'd like Three to more. negotiate.:
1: um, You talked earlier about uh, God wanting us to be s- self-introspective when we are in a place where we're uh, doing evil, but not when we are living uh, a holy life. Um, but I found, I don't know, personally, there's been times in my life where I thought I was living the life of a saint, but looking back, I have a lot of questions about that now. So where, is there a place for self-introspection, or for, how do you, how do you on an ongoing basis, evaluate kind of that in your life?
0: I wasn't talking about long periods of time. I was talking about specific acts. Uh, and you're right, sometimes we deceive ourselves. It's very easy to be self-satisfied and self-righteous, oh, look how good I am. So we have to be self-critical and honest at all times. Yet at any particular time, if in fact you are doing something good, self-knowledge spoils it. And if in fact you are doing something bad, self-knowledge spoils it. But how to discern whether you're doing something good or something bad is, is another question. Um, you mentioned before
1: about uh, uh, about the Muslim woman sitting in the front row, the Holy Spirit pointing out as being the Holy, or what was it, the most sanctified uh, person in the room, um, and saying that uh, uh, she loves me more than even you do. Um, and my question to that was, uh, how could that be? I mean, d- doesn't she love someone else, or love a fabrication that she has subscribed to?
0: And no, not, uh, no, out? no. Uh, where did Muslims learn about God from the same people we did from the Jews? Do any of us fully understand God? No, so it's a matter of degree. Certainly a Christian knows God more than a Muslim does, much more intimately, much more completely, much more accurately. But though a Muslim has a primitive and inadequate uh, knowledge of God and line to God, the individual Muslim may well invest more of his or her life and soul and heart in that primitive communication line than the Christian. It's quite possible. To say that Muslims worship a different God than Christians do is as absurd as saying Jews worship a different God than the Christians do. Uh, The nature of God uh, was not invented by Muhammad. It was revealed by God himself to his chosen people, the Jews. And Muhammad met many Jews and Christians and that's how he learned about the true God. So there's a lot of good theology in the Quran mixed with a lot of bad theology to say that something is completely bad without anything good in it. Uh, I, I, I don't know any example of that. I've even learned from the Nazis. Because a perversion is always a perversion of something good, and if you could get under the perversion and see the good thing, you could learn from that. Okay, one, one more this time, okay. we really ah, mean it. <laughs>
1: So who is your favorite saint then? Like someone who inspires you personally toward sanctity in your own life?
0: Well, those are two different questions. If you mean who is my favorite if if you mean by who is my favorite saint, who would I like to be the most like? It would be Jesus' mother because she was the closest to him. If you mean what saint do I love to read about and uh, would I like to interview the most and do I identify with the most, it would have to be Augustine. I think The Confessions is the most inspiring book I've ever read outside the Bible. I kind of meant more what your first answer is, but I like both of them. Okay, glad you like it. God bless you. <laughs>